Let's sing that chorus one more time. Lord, as Randy comes. Nothing and no one comes close to you. Nothing could ever come close. Nothing and no one. It's you and you only. Nothing could ever come close. Lord, nothing. Nothing and no one comes close to you. job leading us into worship tonight. Praise the name of the Lord. It's good to be in the house of the Lord with you tonight. The Lord has placed something on my heart, and I'll be right up front with you. I didn't come to preach a message to cause you to shout tonight. I really came to preach a message to cause you to pray tonight. I believe tonight God has given me a message to compel you. It's a compelling message. It's a message that's harvest-related. How many of you got loved ones you'd like to see saved? How many of you got friends you'd like to see saved? How many of you got neighbors you'd like to see saved? Come on. How many of you got fellow workers you'd like to see saved? So I believe we all say we got somebody we want to see saved. Well, tonight I come to talk to you about you and them. And I come to declare to you that it's time. John 4, 35 says, Do not say there are four months and then comes a the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes, look at the fields, for they're already white for harvest. And Matthew 9, 30 says, then he asked his, said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. You know what? We're talking about a great move of God taking place, and we all have an expectation for that. I want us not lose sight of, though, the reason, the purpose for this move of God that is coming is for the harvest. It's God's heartbeat. All of them people that you said you wanted to be saved, he wants to see them saved. But you know what he wants from us? He wants to, us to help them to get saved. He wants us to lead them to him, and he will save them. And if ever there was an hour that you need to speak to those people, you need to love those people, you need to minister to those people, it's this hour. It's an opportunity for the greatest move of God to take place. Why? Because there's going to be so many souls be saved that like we've never seen before. I believe because Jesus is coming back. And this last time harvest revival is what it's going to be. And God is going to coming to take our people away and the ones that we love away. If you got loved ones like me, I want to see I want to see them all saved, you know. I want to pray for revival, but God, save my children, save my family, save my friends, save my loved ones. Come on, somebody. If you got, are you compelled in your heart tonight for the harvest? I'm going to challenge you tonight. Do you really have a heart for the harvest? Do you really want to see these people saved? I want to talk to you about tonight. How do you see them? I want to talk about how God wants victory for his people. He cares for each and every one of you, you believers. But he also cares about, everyone, about each and every one of them. Who is them? It's the unbelievers. I believe the greatest hour of God's outpouring of his grace is upon us, and that it'll spark a revival for the sole purpose of winning souls. See, Jesus is a great shepherd who tends and cares for sheep, cares for you. But he also cares for the lost sheep, for them. Remember, he left the 99 for the one lost lamb. I was one of them, and so were you. I was almost 37 years, I was 37 years old when I came to know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And so often I thought back to, what did people think about me? I was one of them. What, what did they see in me? What, what was it about me? Most of them must have thought I was an impossibility. For 37 years, no one ever approached me. I often wonder, was it the long hair that I had? Was it the rock and roll band I played in for 20 years? Was it because I drank and I partied? 
Was it because of my language was bad? Until one day, 37 years later, one lady saw me as Jesus saw me. And she approached me to tell me she had a vision about me. I laughed, but she wasn't laughing. And because of her, six months later, I was no longer one of them. I became one of you. Yeah, hallelujah. You know, there's a lot of empty seats in here tonight. And it's not because there's not any more lost people out there. There's plenty of empty seats here. And I want to ask you, I want you to get a perspective for a moment. If these seats begin to fill up with your family, you said your friends, you said your neighbors, and you said your fellow workers, how would you see that? Would you be excited? Would you be amazed? Would you be thrilled? But what if those seats beside you were filled up with drug addicts, alcoholics, prostitutes, men or women who just got out of prison, a boss who fired you, a well-known adulterer, someone who cheated you out of your money one day, an ex-spouse, a con artist, a blind man, a crippled man. How would you see them? Would you see them as impossible? Or would you be just as excited if it was your loved one? Come on, somebody. It's going to challenge us. Tonight, I want to talk about the importance of how we see them and how critical it is to winning the harvest. So let me begin with the scripture so we begin to talk about them. Romans 5, 19 and 20. For by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abound, grace abounded much more. Father, I come to you tonight in the precious name of Jesus Christ. You've given me an assignment, Father. You spoke to me what's on your heart. And God, I'll do my best to share this to the hearts of the people that are here tonight. To try to help them to understand the urgency and the importance of our focus. About this is a time that it's time. The harvest fields are ripe and the laborers are few. And that we have a responsibility to reach the lost. God, I pray tonight this word will be compelling to our hearts. Move us and stir us, God. To have a passion for those that are lost like never before. And I give you praise for it in Christ's name. Where sin abounded, God's grace abounded even more. When Adam sinned in the beginning of time until now, his sin has led many, be many becoming sinners. But since Jesus went to Calvary and paid for our sins, many have been made righteous. So here's what God is showing me. Where sin abounds, and believe me, sin is abounding in our world today. It's rampant. It's that part of the scripture is true. The next words must be true also. Much more will God's grace abound. Sin will never get to the height or the depth that God's grace can't overcome it. See, I believe the Lord's coming back soon. And this loving, gracious God that we serve is opening the floodgates of grace to give many an opportunity to become righteous. Your loved ones, your friends, your fellow workers, those that you mentioned. And I believe the greatest hour for the church is now. I pray that we don't fail to seize this opportunity. If we're ever going to advance the kingdom of God, church, it's now. I hope we understand advancing the kingdom of God means growing the kingdom through conversions, for the fields are white for harvest. And God gave me a word. Time is not long. Whatever you're going to do for God, do it now while God's grace is abounding. If you're ever going to talk to them, talk to them now. If you're ever going to love them, love them now because his grace is abounding. You want to know what's moving this world right now? It's his grace. You know what's compelling them to come in? It's God's grace. It's his mercy. You're seeing people get saved you never thought would get saved. 
And we're not to be casual about that. We need to recognize that now is the hour. Forget about the past and all the other times you tried. Try again now. Try. Tell them about Jesus. Tell them there is bread in the house of God. Compel them to come to the house of the Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I don't believe God's coming back for a weak, anemic church. I believe we're in an hour of seeing, God, seeing our sons and our daughters coming before back to the house of the Lord. Hallelujah. We've all got so many people who we love that needs God's grace. There's so many people who are bound because of their failures and mistakes who've lost all hope. And I'm going to do my part with everything that's within me to see to it they get to hear of God's grace from my lips. And tonight I'm going to piece some things together before I'm done connecting the dots outlining God's plan for this hour. What I'm going to try to create is a bomb. I can drop on our enemy and annihilate him. So let's shift gears for just a moment. Mark 5. You can turn there if you want to. But now I want to tell you about the man in this passage before we read it. Here's a man at the end of his rope. He had literally lost his mind. He was deemed crazy, full of demons, so bad even the bad folk didn't want him around. Matter of fact, to the point, society had literally cast him out to the point he was not allowed to even live in the city limits. His home became a graveyard. It's true. I'm not making this up. He was a marked man, marked as a man who had no value, no self-worth, deserving of nothing, pushed away by society. He was an angry, crazed, vile man. He even fled to the mountains, living in a graveyard amongst the tombs. And the Bible tells us they had repeatedly tried to control this man by putting him in chains. But he was so violent, he would break them into pieces. So they drove him out of the city because no one could take him. They described him as an animal. Now he's in the mountains. He's living amongst the tombs. Now, most of us would be scared to walk through a graveyard at night, but he was actually living in one. Can you imagine living like that? And nobody cares if you are. They actually just wish you would go away and stay. Verse 5 says, always, not sometimes, but always, day and night, he was in the mountain in the tombs crying out as he would cut himself with stones. The only way they could document this statement meant they had to be able to witness him doing this. They would have had to have been sitting out on the porch hearing him scream, or perhaps they were woken in the middle of the night hearing him screaming. To the point they would just have to close their windows to be able to go back to sleep. While he faced his demons all alone, an outcast. And some people hear this and think that's horrible. Truth is, we still do this today, folks. For a lot of reasons, for a whole lot less reasons than them being possessed by 2,000 demons, it's because of how we see them. We cast them out of our social groups. We cast them out of our churches. We cast them out of our society. We cast them out of our families. We cast them out of our lives. We declare them unclean, and we want to isolate them. As long as they're not in our neighborhood or our church or our class, we're okay with it. We drive by them. We walk by them. The outcasts, down in their luck, we turn our heads. We act like we don't see them or the sign made of cardboard they're holding. We justify to ourselves they're getting what they deserve that it's their own fault. And many times it is, other times, though, church, it's not. We judge them by their appearance, never knowing their hearts or story, who they used to be or who they're supposed to be, not even considering the same God that created me created them. The same God who pulled me out of my mess wants to pull them out of their mess. The same God who saved me wants to save them. It's always got to be their fault for living like they are. It is in some cases, but how are you so certain? How do you know that it always is? And even if it is, I want to tell you something, church. It was my fault. I was like I was, yet someone still loved me, and God still saved me. And we assume everyone that is poor, brokenhearted, unemployed, homeless, it's their fault. One thing for sure is they've all been told that, raped by their uncle at seven years old. But it was all their fault. Come on, can I get real tonight? Beaten daily by an alcoholic stepdad, but somehow it was their fault. Born out of wedlock, but it was their fault. Born with a birth defect, but it was their fault. 
Never had a father or mother, but it was their fault. Mind destroyed by the horrors of war on foreign battlefields, but it was their fault. I met a young man once who dad dies and his stepmom commits suicide two months later while he was only 13 years old. Was it his fault? I want to tell you something, true story. I had an uncle who became an alcoholic. As I was a child, I believed it was all his fault. It was in a sense, but it wasn't until later as an adult I came to understand why he chose to become an alcoholic. That had to do with him actually being a prisoner of war for two years in World War II. And as I got older and learned of his horror, I never viewed him the same. Learning of the torture he went through because he was serving his country. Learning that he'd been captured by the Germans and put in a German prison camp where he was put in a dirt hole to sleep for days with only a bamboo covering, wearing no clothes, occasionally taken out of this hole only to be tortured. On several occasions, they'd put a gun to his head as they threatened to kill him day after day. They'd run bamboo shoots up under his fingernails, causing them to fall off. This continued for over two years until finally he was released from the concentration camp. And although he came home, he relived the horrible experiences nightly. Reliving nightly the nightmares of his torture over and over. So he would drink profusely, trying to kill the emotional pain just to try to get a night's sleep without the nightmares. I wept the day when I learned of the truth about this man. I judged so critically for his behavior. It didn't validate his behavior, but it validated his pain and the root of his actions. And we all do this. So quick to judge them all by their behavior. But so reluctant to find out the cause and lend them help. A few years back, I had the privilege of leading my Uncle Lawrence to the Lord. Right here at the VA hospital before he passed. And I often pondered the thought. If only maybe someone would have told him about Jesus sooner. If someone would have seen him as more than an alcoholic, seen him as a wounded man, just maybe it would have spared his life a lot of pain. Maybe if someone would have took the time to find the root of his behavior, instead of focusing so much on being appalled by his behavior, just maybe. I know this, regardless how society views them, to God who created them, they were uniquely created. And whether they are trying to scam me or manipulate me, God loves them. While humanistic judgment condemns them, God knows why they are like they are. Yet he loves them in spite of their sins, just like he loved me and you in spite of your sins. And the answer to this, we got to see them like Jesus sees them. How does he see them? I believe the same way he saw the Roman soldiers who beat him, mocked him, and crucified him. He saw them as men who were enslaved by Satan. He saw them with his own eyes and through his spiritual eyes. He even cried out for them to defend their behavior. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He was saying if these men knew what was causing them to do what they're doing to me, they wouldn't be doing this to me. He saw them to the spiritual realm, the demonic foes that were driving them to commit the acts towards him, forcing their bad behavior upon him. Yet these men had no clue why they were participating. Jesus hates the sin, but church, he always loves the sinner. He sees sin as another one of his children that have been captured. We struggle to tolerate the sins of a stranger and sadly at times even our own. But guess what? We were all created by God. Have you ever stopped and considered the most evil man ever born was created by God? Is it not true? Everything that was created was created by God. But God never created him to be evil. That was only by the demonic force of Satan they became evil. And how can we say we have the love of God that dwells in our hearts when we shut up our bowels of compassion? I need to move on. That's not the gist of my message, but it has a great association with it. For those 37 years, people saw me as an impossibility. I don't blame them. I saw myself the same way. The man in the gatherings sure looked like he would never be the same again that he had done too much and went too far, feeling not worthy enough to even have an encounter with God. 
But Jesus showed us something about his character, about the heart of the Father in this exchange in chapter 5. He confirms that not a one of us has done too much. He doesn't love us. And that he's not a respecter of persons, that no matter where we're at, he will find us and he will visit us. The psalmist says, even if I make my bed in hell, he's there. There are so many people, folks, in our society today that have made bad mistakes and bad choices for which there are consequences for that they pay for every day of their lives. Many now live as outcasts, condemned, feeling unworthy, can't forgive themselves. They don't understand mercy and they don't understand grace. It doesn't come from a man. It comes from the only father that many will ever know that wants so desperately to know them. And while society yearns to hate them, he yearns to love them. And we as humans can never truly give them grace and mercy, yet we can be an extension of it. We can't forgive sins, but we can forgive, but we can forgive the sinner. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Do you know? I don't. How many people last night in our society, maybe even in your neighborhood, laid in their tombs, their bedrooms, spiritually dead to life, and cried themselves to sleep, church? Because how they felt about themselves or about what they've done or about the suffering conditions they're living in, feeling trapped with seeing no way out, they're full of low self-esteem, inferiority, no family, have no friends. They're isolated, they're stressed, they're tormented. I don't know, maybe one of you were one of them. They know what they've done, but don't know how to fix it. Let's let the Word of God tell us, show us by example how to reach them. And I'll say this to begin. First of all, you got to want to reach them. Mark 5, verse 1. Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gatherings. And when he, Jesus, had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit, who had been dwelling in the tombs, and no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broke to pieces, and neither could anyone tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. You see, cutting is not just a 21st century act. Been going on over 2,000 years, even still today in our society. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshiped him. Then in verses 7 to 13, it explains, Jesus delivers this man of 2,000 of two, uh, two demons, sends them into a herd of pigs, and they're drowned. Then go to verses 14 and 15 for time's sake. Those that fed the swine fled and told it in the cities in their country, and the people went out to see what it was that happened. When they came to Jesus and saw the one that had been demon-possessed and named Legion sitting and clothing in his right mind. Tonight, I'm using this worst-case scenario of a demon-possessed man not to preach on demon possession. I use it to make the case that no matter how bad their situation or how bad your situation is, God cares for them, and God cares for you, and he can heal your dead life. The question that's been raised here is, what should you do when you have no hope, no friends, no family, and you're stuck in a tomb, a dead place, because of bad decisions, failed dreams, pushed away by society, isolated, bound by chains, maybe because faults of your own or by things that weren't your fault. Wishing you could go back and do when you let the wrong one in, when you made the wrong choice that day, but you feel it's too late. You feel the damage is done, and now you live in your life of regret. You feel you've been marked by your failures or unjustly victimized. I trusted him. What do you do? You, you do like this man did. You run like a crazy man to Jesus, and you fall at his feet, and you worship him. Hallelujah. This, this man constantly lived death, though alive. Can't be nothing worse emotionally than being dead and alive at the same time. Alive on the outside, dead on the inside. Emotional pain is one of the hardest pains to bear. See, I'm talking about them tonight. Can't sleep, can't eat, can't think. It's like your mind is doing somersaults and won't stop. There's not a narcotic to fix it. It may suppress it, but it's not going to fix it. 
You know what? One of the most disturbing illnesses I've seen was someone in our family who had Lou Gehrig's disease and the effects it had upon a human body. It was my brother-in-law who had it. The disease was so cruel. It was so chilling. It's like you're alive in a dead body. He couldn't move any part of his body. He couldn't speak a word, only communicate by a wink to yes or no questions. Yet he could still feel pain and he could still hear everything. I stood by his bed sharing the gospel of God's love for him and the importance of him accepting Christ as his savior. And when I asked him, did he want to receive Christ? He answered me with two winks of his eyes, which meant yes. I prayed the sinner's prayer and I told him to pray this in his heart. When I was finished, I asked him, did you receive Jesus Christ? And with tears rolling down his face and with two winks, he signaled yes. And we stood and cried and we rejoiced with him just hours before his departure to glory. And for so many people, they are alive, but yet feel so dead on the inside. They still feel the pains and the hurts, but yet they can't respond. They feel paralyzed. They need Jesus. They need you to help them. The only concern society had for this man at gatherings was making sure he wouldn't affect their lives. Society had given up on him. On him. Who have you given up on? Yet God never gives up on them. He didn't give up on me. Yet we say we are Christians. Isn't that to be Christ-like, to be like Christ? Well, by the time we get done seeing how God handles this demoniac field outcast, we're really going to see if we are Christ-like by seeing how God handles the worst of the worst. We got to see people like Christ sees people. We got to look beyond their faults and see their needs. See them as bound and in need of a savior. See them as trapped, tormented, regardless whose fault it is that they're in this condition. It could be because of their sins or as well because of someone else's sin. Could be because they're ashamed of what they did or they're ashamed of what someone did to them. We got to see them for who they could be not for who they become. Help lead them to the one who can remove sin from their life that they don't have the strength to do. I felt this message was so relevant for this fact that if we're going to see a manifestation of God's glory and fulfill God's mandate for this church, we have got to win the lost at any cost. That we've got to see people like Jesus sees them as hurt, broken, abused, deceived, but of value. This man is in a region called the Gadarenes. Now, Gadarene means reward at the end. I thought, wow, okay, pretty rough place. I thought reward at the end. Oh, hear me now. There's hope at the end of your rope. And tonight I want to encourage some folks who are in that place who are at the end of their rope, been beating yourself up, Maybe you've been living in regrets. Maybe you're feeling hopeless. I'm stirring something now. And you're about to get your reward. Because I believe this is going to be a year of victory in this house. So many wishing what you're going through was over. It's fixing me. You know why? Because I'm preaching life tonight. For some folks tonight, this atmosphere is conducive to healing, to deliverance, to breakthroughs. Stay with me. This man was stuck in his condition, setting and believing, this is the cards I've been dealt it's always going to be like this. I must have done this to myself and has asked a thousand times, why couldn't I be like them? Yet this whole time he had no clue, just like you, that just across the sea was his answer, his hope. Little did he know help was on the way. I read in my Bible, he's our very present help in times of trouble. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let me put the brakes on here and stop. To better understand when I'm fixing to drive home, we got to back up and set this up. We got to go to Mark chapter 3. Look at your neighbor and say, your help is on the way. Now, I'm going to walk through this just summarizing chapter 3 and 4 prior to verse 5. In chapter 3, 
Jesus heals a withered man's hand on the Sabbath. This infuriates the Pharisees, the religious folks, messed them up. Their self-made theology and traditions still happening today. Too many religious folks still trying to tell Jesus what he can and can't do in the church. That's why he's doing crusades over there in the impoverished countries of the world. They're not stuck in traditions and bound by materialism. Crusades that are drawing crowds of 100,000, and God is healing and saving them by the thousands. Over there, where people don't care if it's too hot or too cold, whether the songs are too fast or too slow, whether they're too new or they're too old, if the service is too short or it's too long. Over here, we're too worried about having a comfortable experience. When it wasn't comfortable for our Savior being crucified on an old rugged cross so we could experience the power of salvation. The religious leaders began to plot against Jesus. Upon hearing the uproar, Jesus leaves. He, if we want to drive God's presence out of this place, just keep criticizing how he moves. Jesus tarries down to the sea with 12 men who was chosen to follow him. And the Bible says a great multitude follows him to the seashore. And he tells the disciples to keep a small boat ready in case he has to flee the crowd. While by the sea, verse 10 says, revival broke out. We don't actually say the word revival, but that's what I call it because it says he healed as many as had afflictions. I call that revival. The unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and they cried out saying, you are the son of God. I mean, they was having them some church down by the Sea of Galilee. And wherever his presence, you can have church. You can have church on this parking lot, but you can also have church on the Walmart parking lot if his presence is there. Hallelujah. Then verse 13 says, he left when church was over, went up on the mountain with the ones he had chosen, speaking of the 12. Then it says he appointed them as disciples. Verse 14, 15. Then he appointed the 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and have power to heal sicknesses and cast out demons. He just demonstrated by the sea everything he had called them to do, and God will always prepare you for he sends you. After this, they go to Capernaum, to Peter's house, to relax and eat, to be refreshed. It's been a long day. But they no more get there and again. Here comes the multitude again. Such a multitude of people. It says they couldn't even take time to eat. And verse 21 says his own people, meaning his relatives, had heard what all been going on. The Bible says they showed up to take hold of him. Thought he lost his mind, hearing of everything he's done. How many of you got family members that when you got saved, they thought you lost your mind? Believing all this stuff going on around here, speaking in tongues and casting out demons. Girl, what's wrong with you? Same here, his relatives only knew him as a young man, a carpenter by trade. They were fearful this stuff was going to get him killed. And the scribes even began to verbally attack him. But in verse 31, Mama shows up with his brothers to rescue him. But Jesus still refuses to leave. Then we go to chapter 4, verse 1. And again, begin to preach by the sea. And again, a multitude shows up. This time, because of the crowd, he stands in a boat while the multitude stands on the shore and teaches them. He taught them many parables that day. Now watch. He's once again ministering to a multitude. Yet on that same day, later that evening, he says to his disciples, let us cross over to the other side. In other words, come on, get in the boat. I got somewhere I got to go. This would be the disciples' first mission trip with Jesus. Now, you know they were pumped. Man, he's been drawing thousands already, and we're just getting started. They didn't know where they were going, but hey, if he's drawing thousands here, I'll bet there'll be thousands more at the next stop. Ministry is booming. This guy's got the goods. I can just see them all zealous, shouting to them, those still on the shore as they were leaving. Hey, we're going on a mission trip with Jesus. We're going to Pensacola to that great revival down there. I tend to imagine Peter because of his personality. Can't help him. He'd be like shouting out of the boat to his old friends on the shore arrogantly, as he was known to be at times. He chose me. Did he choose you? I didn't think so. Peter. Ha <laughs> ha. Man, I am rolling with the king. And off they go. Then, of course, after they begin to travel on a ways into the sea, we have the epic boat and storm story takes place. They're not so excited now. Matter of fact, they are scared to death. A great storm arises, life threatening, they begin to panic. Jesus is asleep. Disciples come so fearful they accuse Jesus not even caring about what he, what he got them into. 
They questioned Jesus' motive. Master, do you care not that we perish? And he stands up, he breaks the winds of wave, he speaks, peace be still, and the winds of waves obey, and the disciples are amazed. Now, I said all that to show you what took place prior to Jesus and his disciples arriving in chapter 5 at the Gadarenes. Remember, prior to, the to their arrival, a great revival, as I call it, happened. Multitudes of people were touched and healed by Jesus. Then disciples had begun being chosen to go on their first mission trip with Jesus. Then they encountered a great storm and witnessed Jesus' authority. But now we're back to chapter 5. Jesus and the disciples arrived at the gatherings, not by chance, but by purpose. God sent him there. Jesus had been teaching the multitudes, healing the multitudes on the other side of the sea. But he felt it was necessary to lead the multitude of worshipers to go to the I want to say it again, to leave the multitude of worshipers to go to the other side of the sea to see one man. Remember, he said he would leave the 99 for the one. I want someone to get that tonight. He's here for you. If nobody else tonight, it's all about you. He was even willing to go through a great storm to get to this one crazy demon-filled outcast. The one everybody aboard was the very one Jesus pursued. Apparently, not only the townspeople heard his cries, God heard them too and sent his son Jesus. This man sat day and night in a place of many tombs, alive but surrounded by death, thinking no one cared. After all, they threw him out of the city. Now, Mark 5, verse 1 again. They came to the other side of the sea, the country of the gatherings. Gathering, which means the end is the reward. Now, let me see if I can't preach this. Formalities are over. I pointed out how we must be more compassionate to the outcast. I pointed out how God cares about the outcast, the hurting. We can now bring these two elements together so now we can have some church up in here. Because here is Jesus' disciples coming to the shore of the gatherings. Disciples looking onto the shore see no one. They must have been thinking we must be in the wrong place. There should be thousands of people here. Hey, somebody, holler at Jesus. Make sure this is the right spot. And as they reach the shore, they hear, they hear this loud cry. They hear this death cry. And they look up to see this one man on top of this mountain hollering, screaming, acting like a crazy man. And by prejudging him, they probably thought that this crazy man has done run off the crowd. Well, immediately Thomas, Thomas doubts this is the right, the right place. He hollers, Jesus, I think we're in the wrong place. And Jesus looks and says, nope, this is the right place. Now, that's not King James Version. That's the MOV version. What's that? That's my, my own version. And Jesus steps off the boat, and that crazy man on the mountain comes running down towards him. Remember, the Bible says he has demons in him, but it still wasn't enough to keep Jesus away from him. I need someone right here to give God some praise for the fact that it don't matter what shape you're in, what you did or your neighbor did or your child did or didn't do, no matter what you're going through, it's not enough to keep Jesus from visiting you. I come to tell you, your best friend might abandon you. Your family might reject you. But he stays true to his word that he'll never leave you nor forsake you. He'll show right up where you are while you're in your mess, even while you're actually acting crazy like you done lost your mind. He will pursue you. He will come after you. He will leave the multitude to find you, go through whatever it takes to get to you, hell or high water. He's coming for you because he's made up his mind about you. He wants you. He wants you, and he wants you. Somebody needs to praise him for him wanting you, for pursuing you. The disciple says this man runs liberty intentionally to Jesus and falls down at his feet and worships him. Now, we don't talk much or preach much about his worship. We usually spend more time talking about his demons. But at night, I'm not here to talk about his demons. That's all folks ever want to do is talk about someone's demons. God's not seeking his demons. They have no authority. He wants man's worship. He's drawn to worship. And the man falls down to worship Jesus. And as a result, guess what? The next thing that happens, God set him free. I want you, though, to notice when the deliverance took place at the end of his worship. At the end of his worship, he received his reward. Remember, the gatherings meant what? The end of the reward. 
What the, what's the Bible say? He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Diligently seeking God, church, is worship. And as a result, he cast out 2,000 demons out of this man and set him in his right mind. He was the guy people didn't want to bother with. Everybody trying to, trying to bind him, but no one ever tried to free him. Mm. And we're still doing that today in the American churches with our critical prejudgment of others, not only outside the church, but even in the church. He's the guy we hope don't sit by us. Look how he's dressed. Look like he slept in his clothes. He did. I can see he ain't right. He's not. What's she doing here? Ain't that the girl? Never calling her by name, only by her shame. Can I tell you she has a name? And can I tell you God knows it? And he will call her by no other name, and he might even give her a new name? This was the kind of man that will clear out a church. Make the religious folks start hollering, unclean, unclean. But let me ask you something. Do you go to the hospital with the expectation you're not going to see any sick folks in there? Do you understand there are two kinds of people that are going to be there? Those who are sick and those who are trying to help the sick. Do you realize people become doctors and nurses to help the sick? Then why shouldn't we expect to see both in the church? The sick and those trying to help the sick. Why don't people become Christians to help the lost dying, the hurt, the rejected, the messed up, broken people? That's who Jesus came, Jesus came and died for. He said, I don't come for the well. I come for those who need a physician. So why would we not expect them to be here in the church? Why would we not want them in the church? They came to the church for a reason. And in case you didn't know it, it wasn't to see you. Somebody told them to come to see, come and see a man named Jesus. He told me everything I ever did and set me free. Matter of fact, if they're not here in our church, we ought to be looking for what we're doing wrong. Because this church isn't for those who got it all together. It's for those who are trying to get it together. This church is to be a spiritual hospital. It's to be a refuge. It's to be a safe place. The broken are looking for a place where no one will hurt them anymore. For a family that won't abuse them. A place where they can cry and lie until God makes everything all right. A place where people will embrace them. Folks, this man was as bad as bad can get. And most folks ain't even this close to being this bad. Many have simply just made a bad decision or two. Let's stop beating people up. Let's stop keeping them from getting to Jesus. Because Jesus is the only hope they got. He was the only hope you and I had. And the Bible says this man was in the mountains amongst the tombs. He was bipolar. He was battling depression. He was full of, full of oppression, depression, possession, every kind of session there is. And the Bible said he was so tormented that he would cut himself with stones. Now, I want you to listen real close here. It's powerful. That word stone in the Greek translates to the law. So it would be safe to say he would cut himself with the law. The law that can never save him, only convict him. Cut after cut. I keep failing. I can't get it right. It's all my fault. And the law would constantly condemn him. And Jesus had to show up to show the law where sin doth abound, much more does my grace abound. To inform sinners that you're no longer under law, but you're under grace. Although the law is necessary to convict you that you are a sinner, God's grace is necessary for you to be able to overcome what the law convicts. His grace is necessary to redeem you, to regenerate you, so that a judicial act could justify you as though you'd never sinned and never violated the law, declaring you pardoned by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, to where therefore you're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. You need scripture to make sure I'm not going crazy? Romans 6 and 14, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under law but under grace. Come on, somebody. 
Well, let me add Romans 8 and 3. For what the law could not do in that it was weak in the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. In other words, what Jesus did at Calvary, he was crucified for the sins of the world. He paid for your sins. He paid for my sins. And church, he paid for their sins. And in doing so, he did what the law could not do. And that's save us. He did it for me. He did it for you. And he wants to do it for them. So now, whosoever calls the name of the Lord shall be saved. So that we can have life and have it more abundantly. Not just to be convicted, but also to be forgiven. So we not be condemned by our sins. To where through Jesus, therefore, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The law did its part to convict you of your sins. But you must let Christ do his part and forgive you of them and free you from them. Let him do what only he can do. For he is the way, the truth, and the life. Would someone, would anyone, stand up and thank God for his amazing grace? Come on. Hallelujah. Whether it's your fault or not is not a determining factor to whether you can be saved or not. It's whether or not you're willing to call upon his name and ask him for his mercy and his grace that he promised to whoever call upon him. Speaking of the law, Leviticus 21, you may be seated if you want or you can stand. Leviticus 21, speaking of the law, a high priest cannot touch anything dead or be near any dead things. That's old covenant. But I want you to notice under the new covenant. <laughs> under grace, this man was able to run to Jesus and Jesus was able to be near this man who was dead in trespasses and sin. And because of grace, Jesus, our high priest, can declare, come unto me, all you that labor and heavy burden, and I shall give you rest. To God, sending Jesus to free this one worshiper was just as important as setting the multitude free. Casting 2,000 demons out of one man was just as important as casting a demon out of 2,000 men. And what tracks God is worship. God's looking for worshipers, regardless of the shape you're in. Whether you're a sinner, a backslider, bound, an outcast, a victim, it doesn't matter. I told you the gathering means reward at the end. Well, at the end of this man's worship, God delivered him. There are people who are in messes and they're in trials and they've been bound and oppressed for years. And I'm here tonight, at the end of your worship, God can remove your mountains. But you got to come and you got to worship him. I use this example of this man to show you regardless of what state you're in, you can worship. And if you worship, there's a reward at the end. I'd like for if my musicians would come. I'd like for you, if you would, to stand again. The question was, how do you see them? How do you see your loved ones? How do you see your friends? How do you see your neighbors? How do you see your enemies? Do you see them as impossible? Or do you see them like Jesus? Someone trapped, bound, like you were, like I was. I know after I got saved, I always prayed this prayer and I still pray it all these years later. It's one of my favorite prayers to pray to God. Because when I learned the love of Christ, when I thought about how could he love me, I didn't even know what love was. 
But through him, I found the greatest love I ever experienced in my life. So I begin this prayer over and over for all these years. Lord, teach me how to love like you. Will that make a difference in your life? It did mine. You know why? Because through the years, the more and more he's taught me how to love like him, I see people in a whole different perspective. When I see someone dealing with alcoholism, I see a man trapped. When I see people that are bound, I have a heart of compassion for them now. Because I know it's not God's will for their life. I see them as being deceived. I see them as being tormented. I see them not having any self-esteem, inferior, all alone, feeling outcast. That's why a lot of them aren't in here. They don't feel worthy to even walk through them doors to come in here. And for what God's wanting to do in these last days, I'm here to tell you. We got to see people like Jesus sees them. And I want to ask you, are we just going to wait until they walk in one day? Are we going to do as we were commanded? Go to the highways and go to the byways and compel them. And the word compel means them to make, know, make them known to them the importance of knowing Jesus. It's time. And tonight I wanted to come and just encourage you. If ever it's the hour that it's time because the fields are ripe. The harvest is ready. It's not one of these days there's going to be a harvest anymore. It's time for a harvest now. It's time for our loved ones to come home, our sons and our daughters. It's time for our friends and our neighbors. It's time for our enemies. It's time for those who have messed up and some of the worst, most vile people you've ever met in life to find a place in the house of God. How do you see them? What I'm going to ask you to do tonight, I told you I wanted to, didn't really want to preach a message to make you shout. I wanted to preach a message that would make you want to pray. And I'm going to ask you tonight, would you come and pray for them? I told you who them are. Would you come and pray?